Welcome to Amplify Your Process Safety, the podcast that provides the experience and expertise you need when it comes to process safety and risk management. Our hands-on approach will give you the insight needed, whether you're new to industry or process safety, in a role where you interact with aspects of process safety, or an experienced process safety professional. Join us in our mission to protect people, the companies they work for, and the communities where they operate by making process safety knowledge available to all. Hello and welcome to the Amplify Your Process Safety podcast. My name is Elena Prats and uh, this episode I am happy and thrilled to be joined by Trish Karin. Hi Trish, how are you? Good Elena, how are you today? I'm good. So Trish is the um, director of the ICAMI Safety Center and after graduating with uh, honors in mechanical engineering, Trish spent several years working in project management, operational and safety roles for oil, gas, and chemical industries. Trish has represented industry on many government committees related to process safety, including the board of the Australian National Offshore Petroleum Safety and Environmental Management Authority. She is a member of the Mary Kay O'Connor Process Safety Center Steering Committee and she is a chartered engineer, registered professional process safety engineer, fellow of ICME, and fellow of Engineers Australia. Trish holds a diploma in occupational health and safety and is a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. So today, together, Trish and I are going to be basically talking about process safety and how process safety culture has evolved over the past years. I'm sure that Trish has a lot of experiences and stories to tell about both topics. And also, we would like to know how institutions like ICAMI help on promoting a sound process safety culture. So Trish, let's see if we can go over a few experiences or, or questions. And uh, we're going to start discussing a little bit. And the first one would be, in your opinion, which is, and you can say several, which are the uh, incidents or accidents that triggered the need to start focusing on process safety? Thanks, Elena. It's That's a really interesting question. And I think it actually depends where you are located in the world as to which were the really big incidents that impacted in your jurisdiction. So if we think about Europe, UK region, then we think about Flixborough, we think about Cerveso. They were massive events that triggered a realisation and a change in how we do things in those areas. We then think of Piper Alpha in the North Sea. And again, that triggered a change in how offshore was managed and designed within the predominantly the, the North Sea region, but it also started to permeate into other areas. Obviously, the big one that the world took notice of was Bhopal, the worst incident the world has ever seen from an industrial complex, thousands of people killed. Such a, a tragedy and, and, and worse to this day, the site is still there in ruins and contaminated and still making people sick to this very day in, in Bhopal and the surrounding areas, which I think is a, a travesty on our profession, to be honest, the fact that right. it's still not cleaned up. You know, the grandchildren of, of the, the people impacted are now being born impacted by Bhopal to this day. But Bhopal was the that really big global event where the world said, enough, uh, we need to do something different. 
but even so, it, it, it still didn't fix it everywhere. Uh, I mean, you know, Bhopal saw the formation of um, or the original work to bring the CSB to to fruition in the US. That's true. Also, Bhopal triggered uh, the establishment of the the uh, the CCPS as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so Bhopal did some. There was some great legacy that came out of it for us to try and come together and, and improve. There are other incidents around that happen in various other parts of the world. Obviously, you know, one that springs to mind for me is uh, Philip 66, the one where Mary Kay O'Connor died yeah. in. Um, obviously, that one was quite significant from the, the US perspective of a range of others. For me personally, we didn't see a change in Australia really mm-hmm. until Longford explosion yeah. happened. And that triggered a significant change in how we focus on process safety in, in Australia. And so that wasn't until 1998 when we finally got on board with it. So we were we were quite lagging in that that space. But then we really mm-hmm. got on board and, and have progressed substantially in that time. Sadly, we're going to keep seeing the incidents occur until we actually figure out how to learn from them, though, because yeah. we're still seeing repeat incidents every year. The same mm-hmm. sorts of causes are coming up again and again and again. So while we now focus on it more, I think we need to question, are we focusing in the right areas or maybe do we need to be doing something a little bit different because we're not getting substantial improvement happening anymore. I think we did in the earlier days when we put in new programs, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the risk management program in the US, Cerveso uh, Directive, that was then translated into Australia as well, Cerveso Directive and, you know, New Zealand have just recently got on board with it mm-hmm. uh, and, that was following a coal mine disaster, the Pike River coal mine disaster, a little over 10 years ago now. They've recently got on board, but there's still a long way to go. Yeah, I, I agree. I actually had several experiences when I when I conduct process safety training, process safety management training. When I've been doing it here in the U.S., I always explained Bhopal, Flicksboro, uh, Seveso as well, because I'm from Barcelona. So for me, also the European accidents are... Um, made an impact basically mm-hmm. just because I'm I'm from that area so when I joined here when I came here in the U.S. and started talking about like Flexboro Seves so a lot of people didn't know about them and I was like oh really I mean this didn't cross yeah the ocean mm-hmm. um, more and more I can I can feel that people are at least aware when I when I say the name but, it, but it's true. It's just based on your um, area and based on how much exposure uh, your company maybe has around other areas of, of the world. And totally agree that until we learn how to learn from accidents, we won't be able to to stop creating these accidents. And it's very important to see how, how do we share information from accidents. Are companies sharing all the information so that accidents don't happen again in a timely manner? Or, you know, they try to maintain or, or keep that information from for themselves. That's something that I'm sure that we can learn from that. So how do you think process safety has evolved over the past years? So we've been doing process safety for a very long time now. This is no longer a new science for mm-hmm. us, but it has evolved substantially over that time. So you can actually trace, you know, some of the early ideas in process safety right back to the late 1800s, you know, when the the original DuPont black powder factories were built. They were built with blast walls facing away from where the people were. They were situated in areas that were going to be less likely to be damaged. 
They also did some interesting things like the plant manager had to live on the facility with his family. Now, we wouldn't do that today, <laughs> obviously, but it certainly creates a uh, an imperative to get it right. So, you know, it's it's been around for a while, but it took a long time to really mature. And I think it was in the 70s when we did start to to look more at the science of it and we got very technical and that's absolutely justified process safety is a technical field you know we it need is. to be able to yeah. do the detailed analysis the calculations uh, understand what the blast overpressure is going to be and therefore engineer around it or or deal with it to mitigate it so it is a very technical field but in the last 10 years or so we have started to move again i think and it's really around this embracing of human factors and human performance in it. Mm-hmm. Now, we're a little bit behind the OHS field. They sort of realised this a little bit earlier than the process safety field. But we've got there, which I think is the important thing. We're now starting to do more and more of it. And human factors has been around since the 1940s. Again, this is not a new science. But right. we're now applying it more to process safety, which is the really key thing we need to do. So. Mm-hmm. For me, that journey has been from the technical to the human. We need to not forget the technical. The technical is still critically important, but we need to make sure we apply the technical appropriately to the human and make sure we get that interaction right because it's so easy as a, a detailed technical engineer to design something that in in your brain is really simple and logical, but that's not mm-hmm. how a human brain typically works in the heat of the moment right Mm -hmm. and that leads us to either domino events or the incident in the first place so we need to make sure that we embed the human factors right in at the design stage it is part of the inherently safer design principles one of the principles there we need to focus on a simplification how can we simplify the process so that it's Mm -hmm. less likely to go wrong and I like to sort of sum up human factors is how can we make it easy for the human to get it right rather than for right. the human to get it wrong. So they can stumble right. into the right way rather than stumble into the wrong way. Right. Um, I think that's a really important thing. And that's that's certainly the the transition I've seen. And quite frankly, it's the transition I've been trying to push as well because I think it is the important next next step we need to go to. Yeah, I, I agree. I've I've been um, facilitating several several PHAs recently in which um, we discuss like the the human factor role and like on on not only on the typical human factor checklist but on the actual deviation and and definition of the cause uh, for that particular scenario and in some cases i i get the question of like oh well that might be double jeopardy well um that is a tricky point because not everything is double jeopardy i mean an operator can just be out there in the field and quickly um, just open two valves, which are like in sequence, one after the other. And if it's part of the operation, opening or closing these two valves, it's not double jeopardy just because you're closing two. It's it's very important to bring this human factor when we're doing the, the PHAs and, and when we're analyzing how can this affect double jeopardy case? Because a lot of the incidents happen just because a, a chain of events that go one after the other that mm. a lot of people might just consider, oh no, that's that can never happen here because it's like double jeopardy. So yeah. we need we need 
we need to help our brains and, and way of thinking on really challenging, is it really double jeopardy or, or, or not? I think one of the challenges with double jeopardy, though, just in, in general, is that how often is one thing gone wrong caused an incident? It's right. actually always multiple <laughs> things going wrong causing an incident. Yes. So, yes. you know, double jeopardy always makes me a little bit nervous because it's, it's a situation where every time we, we look at the detail of major incidents, there's always mm-hmm. been multiple things go wrong. Correct. Yes. So we do need to be willing to address these matters, I think. And, and so I do love that challenge back about it. It's, it's you know, we need to, to push back because it's never going to be just one thing that causes an incident. If it truly is just one thing that caused an incident, well, how badly designed was that facility in the first place if one failure resulted right. in a catastrophic incident? There's obviously mm-hmm. no resilience in that, in that design. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and back to the, um, the technical approach or like the technical part of process safety, I agree. When we do this uh, more like qualitative studies, Sometimes we get a response which is, oh, no, um, the PSV is discharged to a safe location or um, the uh, blast from an explosion won't reach this building. And then you ask the question, OK, have we done the study? Can, can we can we prove it? Can we prove that the PSV um, discharges to a safe location? Do we have a dispersion modeling done? Oh. Um, and then or do you have the, the blast modeling done? And the answer sometimes it's no. but I know that it discharges to a safe location or I know that the blast won't reach that building. Well, um, how are you so sure? (laughs) So I I like bringing back this um, like technical approach and more quantitative sometimes. So what would be the, um, some of the challenges of implementing a sound process safety culture and basically trying to help not only companies but also like the the communities to be aware of what really has to be done to have a sound process safety culture because it's not done just in one day no it's, it it takes <laughs> a long time to build a safety culture and i think the really important thing to think about first of all is safety culture is actually a subculture within an organization so there's an organizational culture and in fact the organizational culture is a subculture within the societal culture where the organisation exists as well. So we're never talking about just one culture. We're talking about little subsets of culture everywhere. So I think there can be a lot of challenges in trying to improve the safety part of of the culture. You can't go down a safety culture journey without addressing the broader organisational culture. If the broader organisational culture is not in alignment with where you're trying to make the safety culture go, that just won't work straight up. You, you can't make that work because people see the difference and that it becomes disingenuous. Well, you, you're just wanting a safety culture because you need a safety culture journey. Right. So you've got to make sure that you address the cultural underlying aspects of the organisation and that comes back to its values and how those values are practised every day. And any culture journey is always difficult and long. Long, yeah. But you can un- unravel it almost instantly. That's the challenge. You can break a culture very, very quickly, but it takes a long time to build a positive one. So what I would would say is I think what ultimately needs to to come is it's it's important that we have both the top down and the bottom up approach to, to building positive cultures. But the fact is, if you don't have the top down, if you don't have the leadership leading the culture change Mm -hmm. and leading it genuinely and with integrity, you're not going to get the culture change. 
because there is only so much that you can do from bottom up. It is critical that bottom up is engaged in it, though. You can't neglect mm-hmm. it. But at the end of the day, if the leaders aren't setting the agenda for culture, you're not going to get a culture change. No. So, you know, it's about communication. It's about being able to describe where you want to take the organisational culture. What is the what is the point that you're looking to get to? Where are we going? We've, it, you know, culture is a journey. Leadership is a journey. Right. It, they're, they're cliches, but it actually kind of works. And you need to keep mapping that journey every day. And everybody needs to know where we're going so that if for some reason the leader is unable to take them there <laughs> for a certain part of the journey, they can keep going by themselves. And that's really the sign, I think, when you've got, great leadership and a great culture starting to build is that the leader can at times actually fade into the background a little bit and watch the team progress to where they need to be themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's incredibly satisfying for those teams as well because they get to that point and they can look around and say, hey, we did this. We, Mm -hmm. We achieved this and this is really fantastic. So communication, being able to describe the where you're trying to go, having that strong leadership, and I mentioned earlier, It has to be genuine and with integrity. That is so important. You actually do have to care about the people. You can't just pretend to care. You actually have to learn how to care if you don't. Right. You know, early in my career, I probably didn't really care. I had to learn how to care because I I learned early on that I couldn't fake it. You can't Mm -hmm. pretend. (laughs) People (laughs) realise when you're pretending, you actually have to learn how to care. And you can. You can learn that. Um, and it does take time and, it, it you know, it takes practice. And that's the other part about a cultural journey. It's repetition. It takes time and it takes practice and repetition. And every single day as a leader, you have to be not only doing the right thing, but seen to be doing the right thing. Because mm-hmm. sadly, people will watch and they'll watch what you do. Of and, course. And sometimes they'll watch and, and if you're trying to change a behaviour you have or a way you act, the moment you slip back into the old habits, people's natural tendency will be, see, I knew they weren't genuine. I knew I knew they couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. But then you have to acknowledge it. I made a mistake. I, you know, I shouldn't have done that. Acknowledge it, have a little bit of humility and then keep pushing through. And every day, just day after day, consistency in the message, consistency in the action and with integrity. And I think that is is how you need to go through that creating that safety journey. I've I've done several process safety culture training um, courses, so the same training for the entire company, mm-hmm. um, and a few examples where um, like training overall like 300 people. Uh, that was here in the U.S., and I had such a great experience just by being able to feel how different um, people in the organization were uh, engaged in having a sound process safety culture and how some of them really care about it. And others were like, "Mm, I don't care. I'm just doing the training because it's like mandatory to have this training done. Overall, at the end of the training, you could see, and I actually had people coming in during like the breaks saying, oh, you need to talk about this, you need to talk about this incident that happened um, a few months ago because 
we need to have everybody on the same page. And it was great to fill the discussions and especially have different roles in the room, like operations, maintenance, or engineering, because sometimes these are the, the roles that I'm not saying that they fight, which sometimes they, they do. <laughs> yeah, sometimes they do. <laughs> right. But having the, uh, the ability to have these different roles or, or job titles and people in the room and have them argue to extract the positive way and make them like do the click, like, oh, mm -hmm. yeah, you're right. We're not doing it. We're just focusing on production and we're not just focusing on, on, on safety. And you just said the right words and you just made us think that we need to change things because we're not going in, in the right direction. So having the chance to do this type of um, courses and, and getting especially a lot of information from, from the, the attendees, that's great. Also, I've encountered some, some cases in which I had to really convince by being persistent on the need of having a more a sound process safety culture implemented and kind of like guide them on how to do it and assign responsibilities because sometimes organizations that might be um, new in process safety are not sure how to handle some of the uh, requirements and whose responsibility or who's actually in charge of some of, let's say we're talking about like OSHA process safety management here in the U.S. There's 14 elements and these elements need to be assigned to somebody so that they're done. Yeah. I'm not saying that only one person will be responsible for doing the or implementing the entire element. It needs a whole team, but at least somebody needs to be the one overall responsible. So I've also found sometimes um, companies that don't even know how to start in promoting a sound process safety culture in the level of involvement of leadership um, yeah. and what kind of like information they need to transfer so that people care and people get that that input. So I think one of the key challenges is that often people get to be in senior positions in companies because they demonstrate a competency in an area. And typically it's probably a technical competency in, in, in companies that are more subject to process safety risk. And we never actually take the time to train them in how to be a leader. As being mm -hmm. a manager, you've, there's usually a management course that goes. So, you know, you learn how to sign off the invoices and you learn how to do the performance review stuff. You learn the mechanics of management. We could probably do with a little bit more of that too because it, that sometimes does get neglected too. But we promote people. We might teach them a little bit of management, but we often don't nurture and develop their leadership capability and their leadership skills. And that, that I think, is goes to what you're talking about there as well. We need to make sure we engage and we, we teach people how to lead. And leadership mm -hmm. is a process. You can learn how to lead. You don't have to be a born leader. Right. I think there are some traits that might make it a little bit easier for some people, but mm -hmm. you can learn the process. And so I think we need to, to be more willing to teach people leadership and, and nurture and support them in that. I was really fortunate very early in my career, I was taught leadership. And the way that that was done was I actually had a leadership coach. And nice. so I used to sit down on a regular basis <laughs> with this external person that would coach me on what I was doing 
and teach me new ways and open my eyes to new concepts, new ideas, new challenges. And I've now been seeing that coach for the last 25 years or so, and I still see my leadership coach. Nice. I still visit him <laughs> and we have a conversation. Now I, I might see him once, maybe twice a year. There was there have been times in my life where I've seen him every fortnight because either I needed to learn something mm-hmm. or there was something significant going on that I, I just I needed a sounding board to where my thoughts were, where I was going. And mm-hmm. so it's not a mentor relationship as such because it's very much focused on learning leadership mm-hmm. as well. And I think we need to get better at, at helping people learn to become leaders because if we don't help them learn to become leaders, we can't get upset when they don't display leadership skills, can we? Right. No. Of course. So how institutions like ICAMI um, can help on promoting a sound process safety culture and basically transferring all this um, knowledge and and providing help? How can ICAMI help on that? So ICAMI is, um, we're similar to the AICHE, but we're also a little bit different. So we're actually also a qualifying and accrediting uh, learned society. So we actually do professional qualifications for engineers. So outside of the US, um, we do the equivalent of PNG outside of the US, though. We also do the equivalent of ABET in terms of accrediting university degrees outside of the Americas. Mm -hmm. So that that makes us a little bit different in, in some of the things we do. So we, you know, we require certain things to be taught in education facilities for chemical engineering. If you want an accredited degree with us, then you actually have to teach, you have to achieve certain learning outcomes. And so some of those do focus around process safety to make sure that we embed that more broadly. And we've been doing that since the 90s in our accreditation guidelines, in fact. So that's one part of how we do it. Another part of how we do it is the part of IQME that I lead, so the IQME Safety Centre. And this is where we try and engage with companies and universities as well to get them to share and learn in process safety. We produce guidance documents that we make freely available to anybody. So we are, we're promoting that information out there. This is part of our learned society requirements in, in how we're established. So we are required to promote chemical engineering for the benefit of society. That is a fundamental mandatory thing that we must do within ICME. And that means that we have a little bit of freedom to, to, to create some resources to engage with people. But we also, we do run training courses. There is a particular training course called Process Safety, Leadership and Culture, uh, which is a, a course that I, I usually personally deliver myself at this stage. And it really focuses on senior people in a company to learn leadership in safety as opposed to just mm-hmm. leadership in general and how they can influence the, the process safety culture. So we do run that program as well. But I think a key part is to enable people, whether it's companies or whether it's individuals, to come together and be part of an organisation where they can learn and share their experiences, what worked, what didn't. They can seek advice. They can find mentors. These are all critical things in helping people to better shape their safety cultures. So, you know, that's that's the key area that, that I spend a lot of my time in is just engaging with people, doing presentations uh, sitting down and talking to to companies or to individual groups, doing podcasts. It's actually about getting the message out there. We need to continue to remind people about, one, why process safety is important, and two, what they can do about it, how they can impact it. And if we can keep doing that, then hopefully we can start to, to change how people perceive it 
and Mm -hmm. get them engaged actively to try and embed it and improve it in their own organisations. Yeah. You just remind me when I first um, started after I graduated um, in 2004, I was a production uh, manufacturing and pilot plant manager um, for a polystyrene um, site in in Barcelona for Total Petrochemicals. Mm -hmm. And we had at the time, there were like seven sites, um, seven polystyrene sites um, all over the world. And we didn't have at that time any any sort of like real communication between the sites, like between our peers at, yeah. at the sites. And we start we started to establish like at least with the European sites, we were doing uh, every three months, we were meeting in one of the sites and we were sharing all our incidents and not only like process safety or occupational safety incidents, but also the ones that caused like any production um, loss or loss of revenue, basically. Mm-hmm. And this like sharing of experiences was great because I, I cannot count how many times after sharing all these experiences, we were able to avoid having other um, like the same accident or the same yeah. loss of revenue, loss of production at like at my site after hearing from like one of the French sites or one of the, the sites in, in the UK. So mm-hmm. we ended up sharing all that with the sites in China, in the US as well. And there was a lot of communication just between us. And I'm sure that a lot of companies are doing that as well, for sure internally. But what I think I would like more would be sharing all that information between different companies. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't know how we can improve that. Of course, there's ICME, there's um, CCPS, um, the Chemical Safety Board doing great Mm -hmm. with all the incident investigations. But I would like to go a little bit beyond that and see how like companies within the same industry, pharmaceutical companies, um, refineries, midstream, they can gather. And I'm sure that there's um, some other venues to, to collect that information or to share information. But I'm not sure how open people is to, to share that outside their organization. Yeah, the, the big challenge there is we see uh, often the legal imperative mm-hmm. come to the fore and we get stuck on this idea right. that that's privileged information and we can't share it because we might face prosecution or we might get sued for it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think our, our legal advisors in our companies are critically important to make sure we don't inadvertently put the company in a position of prosecution. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, one of the things that frustrates me a little bit is I've worked in operations and I've worked in organisations, I've been an executive in a company, and I've been the safety executive, so the safety advisor to the company. Now, the company can choose to take my advice or they can choose not to take my advice. At the end of the day, legal counsel actually is an advisor. And it's up to, I I think we need to create this imperative of leadership in our chief executives and in our executive committees to say, okay, we'll take your best advice, but we need to find a way to share because mm-hmm. we need to make sure that others don't have the same problem we had. It, it's no longer a situation of your competitor has an incident and it's an advantage to you. It's not right because no. society doesn't accept it. Your competitor has an incident, you're going to suffer too because you're going to be tarred with the same brush at a right. societal level. So 
we actually need to help everybody not have incidents. There's no longer a competitive advantage in in that space. And so I think we need to better engage with the, the legal counsel to say, hey, you know, what, what's your advice so we don't get prosecuted, but we still have to share. And remember, they're advisors. The chief executive of the board run the company. Right. Legal counsel is an advisor, like the safety manager is an advisor. Um, right. You know, you need to be very careful if you're going to go against the advice of one of your top-level advisors, obviously. Mm-hmm. But we need chief executives and executive committees and boards to be willing to share and not just say, well, the lawyers told me I couldn't do it. Well, the lawyers right. don't run the business. You actually have a, a moral accountability and responsibility to share if that information might stop someone else getting killed or a right. major incident occurring, I think. And that... Right. that to me is, is I think where we need to to somehow move to. Mm-hmm. So just to start concluding with the uh, with the discussion, what's the advice that you have for uh, somebody that's recently out of school or like uh, early career folks who are considering a focus on process safety? Take opportunities when they present and get experience. So you mentioned, Elena, you've worked in, in operational plants mm-hmm. before yep. you went to process safety. I yes. worked in operational facilities before I went into process safety. Get some experience in operational facilities. There's nothing like it. Uh, mm-hmm. it. It teaches you so many things, but it also means that when it does come time for you to be advising people on things, you've got some experience to fall back on so you don't provide advice that is just not practical and can't be done in an operational world. So, right. you know, be open to, to opportunities. One of my early jobs was I was an engineer. I was designing and installing aviation fueling systems. It was all very nice and I was enjoying it. It was, it was good fun. And then an opportunity presented for me to go to work at a refinery on shift supervising the unloading of oil tankers. So a completely different job. I went, mm-hmm. well, that sounds interesting. Never done that before. I'll go off and try it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the number of things I learned from being hands-on operations was just phenomenal. But Take those opportunities. Get in there and see what different things you can do. You're going to make mistakes. We all right. make mistakes. I made mistakes. You know, in, in, in recent years, I've started to reflect more on the mistakes <laughs> I made early in my career and really think about them and what I've learned from them and how they shaped who I am. And, you know, sometimes people will hear me talk about the, the process safety incidents I personally caused. Yes, mm-hmm. I caused process safety incidents early in my career. Fortunately, no one was hurt. Mm-hmm. But they were still process safety incidents and they were still my, I, I caused them. Um, mm-hmm. And I've had to learn to deal with that and learn to accept it. And what can I take out of it? What can I share with people so that we all realise we will make mistakes, but learn from it. Don't make the same mistake twice. Learn from that mistake. And I mentioned it earlier, you do need to actually care about people. and if you don't really care about people, learn how to do it. Get some mm-hmm. coaching in that space because you can't fake it. Uh, people can tell when you're faking it and when you're pretending. And caring about people because at the end of the day, process safety is a technical field and we don't want to have the big explosion happen and the plant damage and the revenue issue, but people die in process safety incidents. And that is what drives me to keep doing process safety every day. If something I do means someone else won't needlessly die in a workplace incident, then that's what keeps me going each day. Now, the challenge is we can never know whether something you did led to someone not dying. But 
I've got to hope that what I do helps people learn and share better and not make some of the same mistakes that others have made or that I've made so we can get to that point where people get to go home because people have a right not to get hurt. That's that's awesome. That's great. Thank you, Trish. Thanks so much. Well, I just wanted to thank everybody for for listening to amplify your process safety. I hope you you liked it. I really enjoyed the talk with you, Trish, and hopefully your job, my job, and everybody's job related to process safety basically help to ensure that everybody goes back home safely. And we can encourage some people that are listening to maybe think outside of the box and outside of like their day-to-day work or mentality and say, hey, am I doing things right? Is there any additional help that I might need? Can we change things um, to make a better place? Because I think sometimes we're just buried in in how in like our day to day. So yeah. I'll just encourage everybody that is listening to think um, on how things are being done and see if we can change them um, to make them better. So if you liked um, our episode today, find us and rate us at. Um, www.amplifiedconsultants.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like us to talk about a specific topic, just feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn, or you can just simply send us an email to podcast at amplifiedconsultants.com. Again, thanks again for listening and uh, have a great rest of the week. Thanks, Trish. Thanks, Elena. Stay safe. Bye-bye. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Amplify Your Process Safety. Head to our website, AmplifyConsultants.com, to find our show notes and other resources. Thank you for joining us in our mission to ultimately save lives by advancing process safety right here on Amplify Your Process Safety. Until next time.